Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I'm delighted to have you with me today. And I think today is is going to be a very important episode. I, I hope you will consider sharing it with your friends who think that we are somehow going to address this cancel culture and begin to turn things around based upon who we elect into political office and the protests that we raise. Turning around this cancel culture is liable to be a long-term project because its existence is a long-term development rooted in the religious ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his book, The Social Contract. And today I'm going to look at not his view of Christianity so much, which I did cover last week, as his view about religion itself and its relationship to the state, and you will see why it has brought about the cancel culture we now have. But as I listened back to the last couple of weeks in this little mini-series, I realized that no, no matter what, we are always looking back at our longing for Eden. Now, you might say that that can't really be true because we have drug addicts and alcoholics and all kinds of addictions but that, that don't seem to be longing for Eden, but, but they exist because they're longing for what they know they can't have and they're trying to find it in something else or drown those dreams of Eden with things that distract them from a longing that can't be satisfied. And some would maybe say people can't believe in a return to Eden if they don't know the Bible. Otherwise, it's unknown. It couldn't be anyone's pursuit. But as I was trying to just say, it is our pursuit because we were made for Eden. And we long always for that for which we were made, whether we call it Eden or not, or realize that's what it is or not. In secular terms, it would be called utopia, a pointing towards something that says, you know, this can't be as good as it gets. There, there has to be something better. Let's, let's strive to the better. And throughout Scripture, the end times, even, even there, the final movement of history is spoken of often in terms of Eden. And for those of you who are longtime listeners to this podcast, you'll recall from my series on Western civilization, uh, this quote, which I'm going to give you from Harold Berman's book, Law and Revolution, which was taken from a book by uh, historian Eugene Rosenstock Husey. And here's what he said. When Christian eschatology was discarded by the Enlightenment, and that's the period of time we're talking about, that's the period of time in which Jean-Jacques Rousseau is writing, and discarded by liberal theology in the 18th and 19th centuries, a secular eschatology took its place. No people can live without faith in the ultimate victory of something. So while theology slept, the laity, the people, the Rousseaus, you might say, betook itself to other sources of last things. 
to the eschatology of Karl Marx on the one hand and his kind of utopia and a Friedrich Nietzsche on the other, which is essentially a nihilism that says we have to create our own meaning, our own end, in our own existential moment. And so Eden really was Rousseau's goal. He wanted a world without the disunity and the destruction of harmony in living, but for him the goal had to be reached without religion, or at least a religion that spoke to or had some kind of present reality related to the social order. Because, in his view, it's the view of many being espoused today, this kind of religion that had a present reality to it had created the disunity and discord of the world in which he lived. It was a utopian vision of Edenic beauty, but without the God who created that Edenic unity and harmony and beauty. So Rousseau knew, as I mentioned last week, from Hobbes' experiment with asserting a contract or agreement as the basis of all civil authority, that the religious spirit was too strong to be overtly atheistic. And so spiritualized Christianity served that purpose. You might say he re-spiritualized Christianity. What am I referring to here? Again, for those longtime listeners who remember the series on Western civilization, I'll take a quote from Berman about Augustine and the view that was predominant up until the middle of the 11th century when the papal revolution or the investiture struggle took place and the Catholic Church broke out from under the emperor. So here's what he says, quote, before the great reform movement of the 11th century, the church both in the East and the West had taught that the end time is not within this world, the material world, but within the spiritual world, not in historical time, but in eternity. In other words, there was no present reality of the kingdom of God now. This was one of the main points of St. Augustine's contrast between the earthly city and the city of God. The earthly city is a perpetual decay. Those who live in the end times are no longer of this world. For Augustine, the same word seculum meant the world and time. The seculum, then, was without hope of redemption. It could only be abandoned for the realm of the spirit. So that's exactly what Rousseau was saying. This used to be religion, the Christian religion, and then they all of a sudden they got this idea that it was supposed to make a difference in the world, and that's what everybody was expecting, just waiting for the hammer to drop from them to want to be the kings and the rulers, and sure enough it happened, and now we got a mess, right? And so you might say Rousseau was just simply saying, hey Christians, go back to that old idea that that your time hasn't yet come and you just need to escape. And that's the reason really you're not any good citizens. You remember those quotes I had last week? Christians make lousy citizens because while they may do their duty, they really don't care how anything turns out because they're just here to fly away, right? That kind of Christianity, that kind of religion, interestingly, Rousseau said was, 
quote, a religion of man. And why was it, in his view, a religion of man? Because it connected man to God. As I've referenced before, a subjective view of Christianity, a Christianity for the sake of man, who's the real object of its focus, not God or the glory of God. It's, it's a religion for the sake of man, not for the sake of God. And that's why he called this spiritualized Christianity religion of man. I mean, that, that should tell us something right there, that, that this view that's often espoused in our church is today was considered by Rousseau a man religion, a man-centered religion. And if, and if that's what we're inculcating in our people through what we preach, then, well, Rousseau would be delighted with us, and we should be horrified. Rousseau spiritualized Christianity to make it, again, exclusively otherworldly, and he rejected the Catholicism of the 11th century as, quote, obviously bad, saying, I don't even need to spend time trying to prove that. So he returned to the only other religion he said existed, which was the pagan religion that engulfed the Roman Empire, and into which he said, as we noted last week, Jesus came into for the sake of creating a spiritual kingdom. The understanding of this strictly pagan religion with its pantheon of gods, he called the religion of the citizen. Because it wasn't for the sake of man as a spiritual being, which was his version of Christianity, but the religion for the sake of man as a citizen of the state. Now he said, this religion of the citizen, essentially paganism, is good in the sense that it unites divine worship with love of the laws. You remember, their gods were eminentistic. They, the, the god and the religion was all tied together with the state. And it's good, he says, because it makes the homeland the object of the citizen's adoration. It teaches them to serve the state is to serve its tutelary God. So there's a union there so that when you're serving the state, you're serving your God. When you're serving your God, you're serving the state. To die for one's country, then, is to be a martyr. To violate the laws is to be impious. He says, but it's bad in that, he says, being based upon error and falsehood, it deceives men makes them credulous and superstitious, and drowns true worship of the divinity in empty ceremonials. It's also bad when it becomes exclusive and tyrannical. Now, there's the first seed of the cancel culture, right? When it becomes exclusive and tyrannical, and makes a people bloodthirsty and intolerant, so that it breathes only murder and slaughter, and believes that it performs a holy act in killing anyone who does not accept its gods. This puts such a people in a natural state of war with all others, which is very detrimental to its own security. So you might say he sees Christianity the way we would see Islam today. Essentially, he's explained why all religions are bad or defective. 
Christianity is a spiritual religion. It detaches people from this world. It makes them lousy citizens, not good soldiers. They really don't care about what goes on here because they're leaving to escape. Catholicism is bad because of its doctrine of the two swords, and it creates a jurisdictional kind of problem between the laws of the church and the laws of the secular ruler. And paganism is bad for the reasons that I just explained. So where that takes him now is where he began with rights. That's what he's going to start with. Man and his needs and his rights. Not God and his prerogatives as God. So he has to come up with a religion for the sake of the state, as I said last week, and cannot have a religion that's for the sake of God. And that's what he comes up with. Here's what he writes. The right which the social pact gives the sovereign over the subjects does not, as I've said, go beyond the limits of public utility. So we see that what he's coming up with here is utilitarian in nature. There is no truth about the state or its purpose because there's nothing in the agreement that can provide that. It's just what works. Utilitarianism thinking is not Christian thinking. So he says, what is of great importance to the state is, quote, for each citizen to have a religion that makes him love his duties, end quote. And of course, those duties are defined by the agreement and imposed on the citizens by virtue of the agreement they don't come from God. They're not imposed by God on them. Then he continues. The dogmas of this religion interest neither the state nor its members except insofar as these dogmas relate to morality and the duties that anyone who professes this citizen's religion is bound to fulfill towards others. End quote. Now, of course, you've got an immediate question. Who defines the morality? Well, that's going to have to be decided by the state, right? And um, again, the duties that he's describing here are not arising from God or out of a love of God, but from the agreement. So he says, this kind of religion is a purely civil profession of faith, the articles of which are for the sovereign to determine not precisely as religious dogmas, but as sentiments of sociability without which it is impossible to be a good citizen or a faithful subject. So you see here, the controlling value is sociability, harmony and unity and peace in the social order. And here's the clincher about this religion for the sake of sociability. And if you don't hear cancel culture in these words, then when I finish, scroll back 15 seconds and, and, and listen again. Here's what he says. Without being able to obligate anyone to believe them, the sovereign can banish from the state anyone who does not believe them. It can banish him not for being impious, see that's what Christianity 
That's what the Lutherans, that's what the Catholics were doing. But for being unsociable, for being incapable of sincerely loving the laws and justice and of sacrificing his life, if need be, for his duties. If, after having publicly acknowledged these dogmas of, of sociability that, that we've decided this is what morality requires and, and duty requires under this agreement that the sovereign has required, he says, if you've acknowledged those and someone behaves as though he does not believe them, let his punishment be death. He has committed the greatest of crimes. He has lied before the laws. Wow. Now, just like other religions that have duties, positive duties, religions have negative duties, right? The Ten Commandments give us eight negative duties, the shall nots. And so Rousseau now turns to the negative dogmas, and here's what he said. I limit them to one alone. This is intolerance. It is part of the cults we have excluded. And what is he meaning here? He's saying, see, the pagans had all these various gods of their nations in the nation's ward and the god's ward, but, but now we've replaced that with just tolerance. So we've perfected, you might say, paganism to create this religion of the citizen. And this is how Abraham Kuyper describes what's taking place here that led to the French Revolution in his third lecture to the students at Princeton Seminary in 1898. Quote, in the French religion, a civil liberty for every Christian to agree with the unbelieving majority. In Calvinism, a liberty of conscience, which enables every man to serve God according to his own conviction and the dictates of his heart. Finally, Rousseau says, and I hope you'll listen carefully to it, those who distinguish between civil and theological intolerance are mistaken, in my opinion. These two types of intolerance are inseparable. See, this is why you've got to get rid of religion or a religion that has any present realities to it. It's impossible to live in peace with people one believes to be damned. To love them would be to hate God who punishes them. Well, that's not correct either, but we'll move on. It is absolutely necessary either to convert them or to torment them. Well, that sounds like Islam. That sounds like much of what was taking place, right? With burning heretics at the stake. Wherever theological intolerance is allowed, it is impossible for it not to have some civil effect. And once it does, the sovereign, the state, is no longer sovereign, even in temporal matters. From that time onward, priests are the true masters. Kings are merely their officers. So, my friends, unless we begin to realize that this world in which we live with its cancel culture is the product 
of one our own sins and the thinking of Rousseau, and until we begin to pick up where progress ended in the Reformation in the 1600s, unless we get straight again our own doctrines of cosmology, soteriology, and eschatology, we're not going to get out of a cancel culture by electing different people to the school board or to the state legislature or to Congress. It isn't going to happen. We didn't get in this mess because of Democrats or Republicans. We got in this mess because the church lost its theology, allowed it to be lost, and did not respond to the Rousseau's of the world, and today we're still not responding to them. And I'll talk about that next week. But this is where it's important for us to remember one of the statements of the Reformation, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, the church reformed, always reforming. And that's what we need. And I hope you'll join me next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's FACTennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FACTennessee.